if this is your first time visiting, welcome. Uh, my name is Carl George. I'm one of the people on staff here, and we're so glad that you could join us today. If you are just joining us, we are in a sermon series in the book of Acts, uh, looking at the birth of the church and how God uh, raises believers together, brings them together uh, for his purposes. And so in your bulletin, if you have one of those, in the back of it, there is a reading of God's word from Acts chapter 2, and Jenny Ding is going to ring for that. read that for us. Please give your attention to the reading of God's word. Our reading today comes from Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Jenny. Your uh, identity really, really matters. I learned this in a rather peculiar way when I first came to Canada as an international student. I remember that I had just taken a trip uh, to the United States to visit a buddy of mine, and I was coming back across the border by bus. And at this time, whenever you cross the border as an international student, they would make you fill out one of these little tiny immigration cards. Does anyone remember those? Yeah, yeah. This card asks about your passport, it asks about your contact information, and your reason for travel, all all pretty standard things. And so I start filling out this document. And as I'm doing that, as I'm filling out this document, halfway down the page, I notice that there's this little checkbox that says, check here if you are a person of Indian origin. And I thought, huh. Some of you know where this is going. I thought, you know, maybe there's a lot of Indians who come through here. (laughs) Maybe there's a certain way they process our applications. I don't know. (laughs) But wanting to be entirely candid and honest, I checked off this box. (laughs) Several moments later, I noticed a border official making his way down the line, checking to make sure that everyone's paperwork was in order. And when he reached me and saw that I had checked off this box, he said, sir, please come with me. Okay. And so I started following this gentleman, we were walking all the way down this long corridor. And I realized that this official was walking me all the way to the front of the line, past this long lineup that I had been in. And and this was like a 35, 40-minute lineup that I was in, and I was getting to skip the entire thing. It was amazing. And as I was making my way down the line, I looked to my right, and I noticed that there were several other Indian people also in line. (laughs) And they were looking at me rather curiously. (laughs) Didn't clue in then. (laughs) And so I get to the front of the line, and the border official calls me over and asks to see my documents. And so I give to him my immigration card, and then with the utmost confidence, I proudly present to him my Indian passport. (laughs) Well, he took one look at my passport. He looked at my face, and then he started laughing. (laughs) He started laughing. And then he presumed to tell me that I am not a person of Indian origin at all. And he sent me to the back of the line. (laughs) 
I had no idea what was happening, but you don't argue with the border official. So I went to the back of the line, and I, I stood in line for 35 minutes, and I finally made my way back home to Canada. And I remember thinking, this is the most bizarre thing that's ever happened. What a crazy country. Like, who does this? And it was only several months later that I realized what it means to be a person of Indian origin. Because if you're in Canada, to be a person of Indian origin means that you're an indigenous person. You are a First Nations people. It doesn't actually mean that you are a citizen of India. <laughs> I, that makes a lot of sense, right? Well, I learned then to identify as being a person of Indian origin meant something else entirely. You see, a closer inspection of my life showed that there were important markers of that identity that seemed to be missing. And you know, as we come to our passage this morning, I think this story, I think, illustrates something of what Luke is trying to teach us about the identity of a Christian. I think what Luke wants to say here is that people inside and outside the church should be able to look at our lives and see evidence that we are who we claim to be. That is, that we are followers of Jesus Christ. And so he invites us here to take a closer, our, closer look at our lives and ask this question. What demonstrates to the world that you belong to the church of Jesus Christ? What are the spiritual markers that evidence that you are, as you say, a person of Christian origin? Here in our passage, Luke highlights three things that identify the early Christian church, and he presents them to us as three things that ought to identify each of our lives also. And here they are. First, a growing devotion to God's word. Second, a growing devotion to God's people. And third, a growing devotion to God's son. Devotion to God's word, devotion to God's people, and devotion to God's son. Let's look at our first point together. Devote yourself to God's word. Well, if you've been reading the book of Acts with us over the last few weeks, you'll know that this section is quite a pivotal moment in the history of the church. Uh, Peter has just delivered his first public sermon to a large group of people in Jerusalem. And in this astonishing turn of events, 3,000 of these people suddenly decide in that very moment that they want to become followers of Jesus also. I mean, it's absolutely insane. This mob of people who would have murdered this man only yesterday now want to follow his Lord. Like, I would imagine that Peter is absolutely dumbstruck. He probably didn't even think he would get this far. But 3,000 new converts are now staring at him, and they want to know what happens next. Like, talk about a high-pressure situation, right? What on earth is Peter supposed to do with these people now? How are they to grow into the faith that they've just received? Well, Luke tells us in verse 42 what happens next. These people begin rallying together and devoting themselves to something called the apostles' teaching. Now, it's not entirely obvious if you're reading this what Luke is referring to here, but we have some clues from these teachings that uh, these are the teachings of the Bible, interpreted by Jesus and handed down to his apostles. More specifically, it is the Old Testament, now interpreted in light of what Jesus has done. So if you flip back in your Bibles earlier to chapter 2, you'll actually see an example of this in Peter's sermon. You can look at that. But in addition, however, scholars think that the apostles' teachings probably also included oral teachings that they received from Jesus, which now form our written New Testament. So, 
what you have here in this passage. It's a description of believers coming together to study the teachings of the Bible. And that's a really big deal. That's a really big deal. They say, if what you're saying about Jesus is true, we need to be in the Bible. We need to devote ourselves, our time, attention, and affection to this teaching. We need to be in God's Word. And so they come, Luke says, day in and day out for the express privilege of studying the Bible. I don't think we fully appreciate how incredible that is. I mean, it's worth noting that most of these people didn't even have a Bible. Their Bible was a collection of numerous scrolls, most of which were pretty expensive or difficult to copy and obtain. Few people, I think, could actually afford their own piece of Scripture, which is why I think these believers are going to the temple every day just to hear the Word being read. Like, just imagine that. Day after day, they're doing this, Luke says. I just think, how much do you have to value Scripture for that to be worth your while? How devoted do you have to be to the gospel to leave your home amidst all your other commitments and show up to the temple day after day just to have the Bible read to you? I mean, that's, that's insane devotion. Like, do these people not have families or jobs or social commitments? Are they not tired from their kids, or burnt out from the week, or just plain busy? Men and women, they are all of these things, and they have all of these things. They're no different from us. But they're leaving their homes day after day and going to the temple because being in the Word matters to them. They're hungry for the Bible. It occupies their thoughts and priorities. Listen, devotion to Jesus and his word didn't just become a part of their lives. It spilled over everywhere. It affected the very rhythms of their week. Being in the Bible regularly and earnestly was their highest priority. They made space for it, and they carved out time for it. I have to admit that when I read this passage... I can't help but think what a stark contrast that is to our version of Christianity. I think it's to our shame, men and women, that we now have the Bible at our fingertips. We have more access, more convenience, and more literacy than any other generation before us. We have every kind of English translation and every kind of resource to help us be in the Bible, and yet we are far less devoted than these. Grace Toronto, I want to tell you that it is a mark of being a healthy church that we should be devoted to the Bible's teachings. So how are we doing with that? Well, I'll say that one of the things that so encouraged me from our recent survey was that the two things, the two things that most excited you about our church was the teaching and our adherence to Scripture. I love that. I love that we're a church where good Bible teaching seems to be happening each Sunday. We ought to give thanks to God for that, truly. But here's what I've been reflecting on in my time in this passage. Do you know what Luke claims to be even better than good Bible teaching? It's good 
Bible learning. It's devotion. What is more impressive to Luke than a pastor teaching good Bible is a whole congregation that is devoted to examining and studying the Bible for themselves. The mark, men and women, of the Spirit's power at work in the church is not so much the strength of its teaching as it is the strength of its learning. It's about devotion to the Bible's teachings. Do you see that? And that's really important because we have this conception, I think, in the church that good preaching is the highest form of spiritual nourishment that a Christian can receive in their week. We put pastors and teachers on pedestals because we don't believe strongly enough that it's the reading and studying of the Bible that actually changes people. I mean, just look at this text. God is causing all kinds of change to affect this community because they have a fundamental commitment to be in the word every day. People are being saved. The church is in awe of God. The culture is absolutely flummoxed by what they see. Signs and wonders are happening. Christian, do you want to see revival happening in this city? I think it starts when the church is serious about its devotion to God's word. Some implications. Grace Toronto, we need to be people of the word. We really do. Some of you aren't spending time in the Bible every day. And I want to gently stir you. I want you to have this kind of hunger. But I also get why it's hard. One of the most helpful illustrations I ever received in my Christian life was when I was at a really low point spiritually. I have to tell you, I didn't feel like opening the Bible. Life was busy, and I felt myself overwhelmed often. But our mentor of mine encouraged me to think of being in the Bible every day kind of like eating. You need to eat every day to be physically healthy, he said. And sometimes you'll have a really great meal, like a big juicy steak, and it'll be delicious and full of flavor, and that's wonderful. And other times you might find yourself just eating a cold sandwich. And you know what? That's okay too. Because regardless of how much you may or may not have enjoyed that meal, the fact is that it's still nourished you for that day. I think, he said, that it's the same way with the Christian life. You need to be in the Word every day to be spiritually healthy. And sometimes being in the Bible will be exciting and flavorful and enjoyable to your taste. You'll love your time in the Word. I'm sure some of us can remember times like that, when we really savored the Word, maybe like we would a prime rib. But other times, dare I say most times, it feels pretty ordinary, doesn't it? It might lack the enjoyment that you were hoping to see and feel. Your time in the Word may even feel like a cold sandwich. But listen, regardless of how much you may, not, may or may not have enjoyed the Word that day, the fact that you opened it and sat with it before the Lord still nourished you in some way. It did. It contributed to your overall spiritual health. Do you follow me? 
I think this really, really matters. In fact, I found it true in my time of ministry that what produces real, lasting spiritual health in people is not the level of contentment that they experience while feasting in the Word, but the level of consistency with which they chose to eat. That's what produces spiritual health. And that's why Luke tells us here that we are to be devoted to this Word. Men and women, for the good of your spiritual health, you need to be devoted to studying the Bible regularly. And what's more, I want you to study all of it, all of it. If you've never read the whole Bible, listen, if you've never read the whole Bible, I want you to make a plan to do that this year. Do that. Don't just flip through the parts you like or that you find easy. All of it is God's word. In fact, if you really want to grow as a Christian, you should aim to read the Bible cover to cover at least every two years. That sounds intimidating, but it's no more than 10 minutes a day. You can do that. You can do that. And sure, there are things that are confusing and surely difficult to understand, but work through that. Work through that. One of the amazing things about this early church is that the only written scriptures they had at the time were from the Old Testament. Like, can you imagine that? The Old Testament is pretty hard and sometimes kind of confusing. What they're wrestling with it together and searching the scriptures because they're convinced that all of it, all of it reflects the glory of the Jesus whom they love. So let's do likewise. Let's be a community of Bible learning. Devote yourself to God's word. This is Luke's first point. And you know, secondly, Luke shows us here that the church is also identified by a devotion to God's people. If you're looking at the text, Luke says in verse 42 that they devoted themselves to fellowship. It's this Greek word called koinonia, and it refers to this kind of unity, this kind of un- unity that is experienced by working towards a common goal, in this case, the good of the faith. And you see that unity everywhere in this text, don't you? Just take a look. Verse 44 says that all who believed were together and they had all things in common. They're united in their common pursuit of the Christian faith and no differences of race, age, language, sex, or occupation can divide them. Don't gloss that over because that is entirely countercultural. I think so often we have a tendency to see the early church as this whimsical bunch of lovey-dovey people who just sit around the table singing kumbaya. That couldn't be further from the truth. This is gritty, almost unnatural fellowship that they share. You have to remember that these are 3,000 complete strangers who have zero association with each other. The only thing that unites them is the fact that they have all just come to faith in Jesus. They're completely different otherwise. If that sounds vague to you, let me explain this phenomenon in a way that you can appreciate. Imagine if you were walking down Young and Dundas Square in the peak of rush hour, and all of a sudden you hear a preacher on the southwest corner of the street proclaiming the divinity of Jesus and the need to respond to him by faith, as you sometimes do. This time, however, there's something gripping about his speech, and others seem to think so too. Because suddenly, everyone around you stops what they're doing and leans in to listen to this man. 
the square, maybe for the first time in its history, gets really, really quiet. And suddenly, it's filled with this joyful commotion. Nobody knows what on earth just happened, but all of a sudden, 3,000 people made a public decision to follow Jesus. Who are these people who are gathered here? They immediately start rejoicing and practicing incredible hospitality because they are united by the same Lord. Can you imagine what that would look like? Jerusalem, like Toronto, was a bustling city with a whole host of different people, trades, and languages. It would be like watching a business executive, a homeless person, a college student, and a sex worker all having fellowship together at Young and Dundas Square. All of these people who are profoundly different from each other come together to become the body of Jesus. Does that sound crazy to you? Because it is. These strange misfits who have nothing in common then start meeting together, going out for meals, attending church, hanging out in each other's homes, and cultivating radical friendship. You have a Pharisee, a fisherman, a tax collector, and a slave all sitting together at the same table. And they are fiercely committed to loving each other well. Look, if you're here and exploring the Christian faith, I have to tell you, there is no other community like this in the world. No other religious or secular movement has ever been able to bind together people of such profound difference and diversity as what you see in the global church. Why? It's because there's something about Jesus that brings people together. And it's this same unity of spirit, by the way, and devotion to each other that Jesus calls us to have here at Grace Toronto also. So how are we doing as a church? Are we practicing good fellowship? Are we loving each other well? Well, I think in this past year, I've heard a mixture of things from each of you. Those of you who are new to the city and the church seem to really appreciate the depth of friendship, community, and engagement that our church has to offer. In a city like Toronto that feels super competitive, sometimes lonely, I know that there are many of you who have felt a sense of belonging here. I'm really grateful for that. If that's you, I'd encourage you to strengthen the fellowship here and welcome others in the same spirit, especially people who are different from you. At the same time, I know there are others of you here who've had a very different experience. You've been at other churches maybe that seemed more warm, more close-knit, or felt to you more like a family. You've increasingly felt like our church is too large, that it's difficult to meet people, or that many of your relationships here feel shallow, immature, unreliable, or somewhat cold. Yeah? And you've approached our staff, elders, and pastors because you want them to do something to change that. Listen, I'm grateful that you're doing that. I wish, I really wish that we could be more of the kind of church that you were looking for. We're trying, but I'll be honest, I don't know how to achieve that. I don't. What I do know, however, is that when I read this passage, 
I'm struck by how little responsibility the leadership of the church takes for creating this kind of fellowship in the community. Do you notice that? Isn't that bizarre? I mean, it's not like they don't care or they're too busy for that. Not at all. I don't think that's the case. But read this passage again slowly and ask yourself, who's really driving the ship? Who is organizing these incredible communities of friendship, hospitality, and generosity? Is it the leadership? No. No, not at all. You don't find Peter calling everyone to hang out at Mary's house. And you don't hear Philip inviting everyone out to drinks at the neighborhood pub. I don't see James organizing a night of speed friending for the church. Look, everything about the community and fellowship of the early church appears to be driven by lay people. They want to meet and they're hungry to be in each other's lives. The the leadership, well, they're just playing catch up and trying to make sure that things are done orderly. Listen, I'm not saying that you shouldn't expect things from your staff and elders, but I want you to see from this text, like really see what's happening here. Look at this passage. Everyone in the church is trying to make the community better. Everyone takes equal responsibility for ensuring that the church is generous, warm, and hospitable. This is your church and your fellowship. You have a vested interest in building this community and not just being served by it. Can we do that? So whether you're thoroughly enjoying your time here at Grace or you're really not, can I invite you to help make our church better? Can you help us become the kind of church that you would be proud to attend? So let's get practical for a moment. How do you do that? Come to us with your ideas. Meet and get to know at least one new person every Sunday. Go out for lunch with different and not the same people every week after service. Take advantage of church invests. Invest, like really invest in your small group community. Look, the bottom line is that the church in Acts was growing faster than anyone ever imagined. It would have been impossible for Peter and the apostles to be in the word and fellowship with all 3,000 people. You understand that, right? It was necessary for mature Christians who caught the vision to step up and create these communities of fellowship. Grace Toronto, I want to tell you that there are people right now at our church who are looking for this kind of community in a small group but we have nowhere to send them because we have a shortage of committed Christians who are actually willing to step up and lead a small group. I want to be clear, this is not Kingsley's problem. This is all our problem because this is your church and this is my church. Can we work together to increase the temperature of our fellowship, please? Say this in love. If you're a member here, start acting like a member. If you're not a member yet, it may be time for you to get off the fence. Don't be a tourist. Plant roots in this church. Extend yourself to others. And for God's sake, help us make our fellowship better. 
because men and women, it is a mark of the Christian church that we should be devoted to each other. And I mean really devoted, not just in a cool, casual way. Look at the way these people care for each other. They're even selling their possessions to give to those in need. Like it's astounding how devoted they are to each other. I think oftentimes when we read this passage, what sticks out to us most is this mention of the selling of possessions. It's the real elephant in the room whenever this passage is preached. Everyone wants to know, does God want me to sell my stuff? Am I to give away all my belongings for the kingdom? What am I allowed to keep for myself? Listen, I don't know the answer to that. But I can tell you that God wants us to have generous, generous fellowship. How generous, I think, is between you and God to determine. However, I do think that our preoccupation with this question is maybe indicative of where each of us are spiritually, myself included. You have to wonder, is it a mark of our Christianity that we primarily want to ask, I wonder what God might call me to give up? Instead of asking, I wonder what my brother or sister really needs. Do you see the difference there? Because it's the latter question, not the first, that drove the early church. And I'll be the first to admit that that is not the question that often drives me. I want God to change that about me. And if you're like me, I want God to change that about you too. But I do find myself learning from much from many of you in this church. I've seen people here cook meals for others in need, pay off credit card debt for those who are struggling, subsidize rent for those who fell on hard times and help people afford treatment when they didn't have the means to do so. I've seen our diaconate take care of people's groceries, provide housing for those who've been evicted, offer job training for the unemployed, and get people access to counseling for mental health. Listen, if you're here today and you are in some kind of need, this passage reaffirms that the church is devoted to helping you. Please reach out to us. We would love to help you. And for the rest of us here, who have our needs met already, let's prayerfully consider how we can be a more generous and more hospitable community of fellowship. Let's seriously do that. As God's people, let's be devoted to each other. This is Luke's second point. You know, finally, Luke shows us here that the church was identified by a devotion to God's Son. He says in verse 42 that they devoted themselves to something called the breaking of bread and the prayers. Now, this sounds kind of obscure, but scholars think that Luke is probably making a reference to the Lord's Supper, followed by these traditional prayers of Jewish worship. Now, here's what's so really interesting about that. It's that the worship of the early church consisted of these two elements, one being quite new, the Lord's Prayer, and the other being quite old, these sad Jewish prayers. I think what Luke is showing us is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is both new and entirely glorious, but at the same time, at the same time, it's not removed or isolated from the Jewish faith. If anything, what has come about through Jesus is not a new religion. 
What God has done through Jesus is a fulfillment of all his promises to his people through all the generations. But it is also his answer to generations of these Jewish prayers. You see, the breaking of bread and these prayers were meant to remind the church that in their devotion to God's Son, they were actually worshiping the God of their age-old faith. Because in Luke's first book, he records how Jesus administered this meal to his disciples on the day of the Jewish Passover. He writes that Jesus took bread, and when he gave it thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, he took a cup after he had eaten, they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And by referring to this meal, Luke wants to remind us that at the very heart of the church is this fundamental devotion to God's Son, to Jesus. You see, in this meal, Jesus taught his disciples about the sacrifice he was about to make. He taught them that sin had so alienated people from God and earned his displeasure that unless God were to do something, no one could be saved. What he meant was that God was inaugurating a new Jewish Passover through the shedding of his blood, not a lamb, for the forgiveness of sins. You see, in the breaking of bread, Jesus explained that his body too would be broken so that you and I could be made whole. By this, he was speaking about his death and resurrection through which God had determined to save sinners by faith in what Jesus has done. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, I want to tell you that this is the good news of the gospel that is extended to you this morning. This news, this wonderful news, is why the church meets week after week to celebrate what Jesus has done. They receive their meal, Luke says, gladly remember what God has done for them and receive spiritual nourishment to be his church in the world. They come together, Luke says, with glad and generous hearts, praising God because they can't stop rejoicing over what Jesus has done. That's marvelous. I think there are many implications of this text for our church. But chief among them is that our devotion to Jesus distinguishes us from a world as a community that is known for its joy. And it's infectious joy. Joy such that people who don't even know what to make of Jesus see this community practicing the faith and think there's something different about those Christians. What is it about the church? I want to know more about their Jesus. And that's how the church grows, doesn't it? In fact, if you didn't know, that's actually the story of how my wife came to faith. I realized just yesterday that it was 10 years ago this week when Kathy attended her first ever small group at this church. We were just friends at the time and she wasn't a Christian. But she was curious because I talked to her about my devotion to Jesus. You see, I read this passage and realized that there was something really special about Christian community that got people hooked. So I took a risk and I invited her to a grace gathering because I knew that this was a good community of people who loved Jesus. And you know what? She said yes. Eleven of us started meeting together each week doing all the things that this community of faith did in Acts 2. We ate some delicious food 
talked about the Bible, shared life, prayed together, and cared for each other's needs as best as we could. And in that time, God impressed on Kathy just how amazing and wonderful the community of his church really is. She said, I have never met people like this. People who are so kind and so generous and so authentic in their devotion to God and others. I want to tell you that she gave her life to Jesus because of what she saw in the community of faith. She saw people who were devoted to the word, devoted to each other, and devoted to Jesus. And the Lord blessed that. And the Lord added to our number that day just one more person who was being saved. Isn't that terrific? And since then, we have heard many more stories just like hers of people being drawn to know Jesus through what they saw in the community of this church. This church. And so I pray that we would take this text and we would continue to grow into an even better community. That we would be a church like this. That through the devotion of this church, Christ would be glorified. And many more people in the city of Toronto would be added to our number. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this text that you've given us. We thank you for all the identity markers of your church. We ask that you would help us be a community that is more devoted to your word, that is more devoted to each other, and that is more devoted to you. We ask that you would build up our faith, that you would strengthen us, that you would add many more to our number, and that your purposes would be fulfilled in this city. In Jesus' name, amen.